Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Turn to Exodus chapter 7 together as we continue our study through uh, the book of Exodus. Today is Plague Sunday, everybody. You guys excited about it? Um, we're not going to cover every verse of Exodus 7 through 10, but we are going to do an overview of the nine plagues that hit uh, Egypt uh, before then next week looking at uh, the Passover event itself, the 10th and final plague. I'm going to open in prayer, and, and uh, as I do, I think like so many of you, uh, my heart is just grieved over uh, the events in Maine this last week, and then also, of course, Uh, these last couple of weeks, just watching war unfold in Israel. And we just want to intercede, ask God to bring peace to that uh, region. And so let's cry out to him and commit our time in the word into his hands. Lord, we, we come to you with news feeds that are just bombarded with these terrible images and reports continually. And uh, Lord, we, we just so often we don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. We don't know what to say. King Jesus, our hearts are longing for you, for your rule, for your reign. And Lord, we know there are so many people who are hurting, who are doing the hurting, who need you. They need the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd use the church right now in such a, as for such a time as this. Lord, we pray your hand of comfort upon those who are mourning and grieving right now uh, as a result of such grave evil. And so, Lord, we commit it into your hands. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes afresh on you and that these events would even be, Lord, useful to stirring us up in prayer, in love for our world, for our neighbor, and, Lord, looking to you as the great hope of this world. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us today from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, our reading today, what we're going to do, it's going to be a longer reading, but we're going to read all of chapter 7 right now, and then we're going to jump forward to the end of chapter 10 and read the ninth plague. So we're going to read through the first plague in chapter 7, and then we'll read the last plague in uh, chapter 10. So just follow along uh, in your Bibles or on the screen. Uh, It'll take us a few minutes to read this, but it's a good thing to do, to read the Bible, so let's do that. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord, verse 19, said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses, verse 20, and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink water the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's uh, jump forward to chapter 10, verse 21. This is the last plague, the turning of water to blood being considered the first of the nine. Then the Lord, verse 21, said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then, Moses, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord, verse 27, hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. 
And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. All right, so an intense passage uh, of scripture. What's the backdrop of this story? Well, just to remind you, at this point of the story, Moses is really discouraged. You know, when he first came back from his time in the wilderness and announced to the Hebrew elders and the people that God had seen their affliction and was about to deliver them, everybody was happy. But then Moses went in first to Pharaoh for the first time, and Pharaoh declined to release the people of Israel. And at this point in the story, he has already made their labor even more difficult than it had been. So when Moses first went back to Egypt, it was like, yay, Moses is back. And then very quickly, it turned into, we wish Moses had never come in the first place. So he is struggling. He's discouraged. We read last week in chapter six, multiple times that he says to God, God, why, why would Pharaoh listen to me? The, the Hebrew people have not listened to me. I, I, I do not want to do this work. Everything I've done up to this point has made matters worse. So God, in this passage, uh, he reminds Moses and Aaron uh, to, that, uh, he reminded Moses that Aaron would be his mouthpiece and that they needed to continue. They needed to keep on telling Pharaoh to let God's people go. And God said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to multiply signs and wonders in Egypt, but Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. And uh, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt in order to set my people free. And through all of this, the Egyptians would learn about God. So, so we read that Moses and Aaron, they, they finally obeyed God. Uh, They're 80 years old. That's how old Moses is. Aaron is 83 years old. And they go in and it says in verse six and seven that they do everything that God commanded them to do. There's this very interesting movement where Pharaoh says, well, prove that God is with you. Do a miracle. And so Aaron casts down his staff and it becomes a serpent or a snake. And uh, Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers the magicians of Egypt, they did the same thing. And the Bible says they did it by their secret arts. Uh, personally, I don't, I don't think that this was just some mere sleight of hand, like they had these trick staffs with snakes inside of them or something like that. Um, I think that they were true sorcerers in Egypt, very demonic place, worshiping all kinds of false gods. And somehow by the power of the demonic realm, they were able to do something like this. I mean, it'd be quite a a fun miracle if it was just like, well, we had like snakes inside of our staffs and we threw them down like the tricks on you. And then the real miracle then would be that Aaron's snake just went and ate all of their snakes. That'd be a pretty cool miracle that happened. So it's like a double miracle that's, that's occurring. Uh, they're able to reproduce Aaron and Moses's miracles or signs um, up to a point. Um, this first one they're able to do, and they're also able to turn the water into blood. Notice that they can never counteract what Moses and Aaron are doing. You turn the water to blood, we'll turn the water back into water. Uh, they don't do that. They just make everything worse. You can make snakes, we can make snakes. You can make blood, we can make blood. Can you fix anything? No, we can't, but we can make it worse. <laughs> uh, by plague three, the frogs or uh, the gnats, they, their power runs out. Uh, so they, they had some kind of power, but it was limited. 
so what, what should we learn here? You know, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. You know, all this stuff is happening. What should we learn through this passage where he's refusing to let God's people go? Well, I want to think about three things from uh, these plagues uh, today. And the first one is this, the first major theme, from, I think, from the plague episodes, if we, if we just step back and just think about all of it, is that God wars for his people. God wars for his people. That, that's what's happening here. God is going to battle to gain his people, to win his people. Now, in, in thinking about this, I think maybe one thing we need to do is we kind of need to rewire the way we think about titling these. We've called these the plagues that God brings against the Egyptians. Uh, but not all of them are plagues. Of the 10 events, only some of them are plagues. Like when he brings boils or death to the livestock, those would be plague-like events. Uh, but all of these events are presented as strikes from God. That's how God describes them. He, he even said uh, in verse four that he would do great acts of judgment. And uh, it's evident throughout these chapters, that's what God is doing. He is judging definitely Pharaoh. I think he's also judging Pharaoh's people. And he is certainly judging Pharaoh's gods or Egypt's gods. Uh, each plague seems to be a direct assault on an Egyptian false god. Uh, for instance, the Egyptians believed that there were various gods of the Nile. So what does God do? He strikes the Nile. He turns it into blood, which, by the way, is something that Pharaoh had done proverbially years earlier when he commanded all the firstborn sons in Israel to be thrown into the Nile River. It's like God is saying, this is how I see this, this, this river of yours. It's a place of death. You, you slaughtered my people there. I'm going to turn this water into blood. Uh, the Egyptians worshiped also, for instance, a fertility goddess that had a frog's head. So God showed himself as the source of true multiplication and true life by unleashing frogs upon the land. It's a, it's a wild episode. They, they, the Egyptians didn't think it was right to kill frogs, so they just let them go everywhere. They're in their homes, in their kneading bowls. It was, it was gross. Uh, the Egyptians worshiped many gods represented by various animals and symbols found throughout all the plagues. Their, their sun gods and their sky gods were defeated by the darkening of the sun. Their health god was defeated by the boils. Their harvest gods were defeated by the crop-destroying hail or the locusts, the gods of the earth, the gods of, their gods of creation, of love, of protection, of medicine, of weather, and more were all defeated during these first nine plagues. And with each successive judgment, God was judging the Egyptian gods so that he could set his people free. God would say it this way later about the final plague, which we'll look at next week. He said, on all the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12, verse 12, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. So that gives you a grid into how God is thinking about these events. I'm picking off each one of the false gods in Egypt through these plagues. Now, like I said, the 10th and final judgment, the death of the firstborn sons, it's meant to stand alone. We're going to look at it next week. It's when human life is finally touched to the point of death in Egypt, by the way. There, these nine plagues, it's like there's a huge opportunity for the Egyptian people who are suffering 
to confess and repent of their sin and turn to the God of Israel, turn to Yahweh. And we're going to look at it next week. It's a really big deal passage of scripture. But the first nine judgments, uh, they're all clearly arranged in three sets of three. I, I asked you this last week to read through Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10, just in your personal time. But uh, if you didn't do that this week, uh, it's okay because I'm giving a homework extension this week. So you can go uh, through it this week as well and just kind of see how they are organized. They're organized in three sets of, of three. Uh, plague one, plague four, and plague seven, the Nile turning to blood, the flies, and the hail, they all begin in the early morning, uh, likely a confrontation with Pharaoh at uh, the water, uh, perhaps for a ceremonial washing that he would do at the beginning of his, beginning of his day before his gods or as an expression of Nile worship. So that's how each one, each set of three begins in the morning at the water, uh, each set of three plagues ends with a plague for which there's no warning at all. Moses doesn't come in. He doesn't give a warning. Plague three, six, and nine. Uh, throughout these judgments, various progressions occur. Uh, it, for instance, we've, we read of two of them. At first, Aaron's staff is involved in these plagues. All the way through plague three, the gnats. Uh, then no staff is used for a while. And then at the end, starting with plague eight, uh, Moses' staff is brought out. So it's kind of like you're seeing this progression. You start out with the like lighter artillery, and then it gets to like, okay, now we're bringing out Moses' staff, you know, kind of thing. And <laughs> so that's what's happening there. Uh, at first, Everybody experiences the plagues. The Egyptians, the Hebrews, everybody is experiencing the plagues. But once plague four hits, except maybe for plague eight, it's noted that the Hebrews all escaped unscathed. All right, so they're not experiencing them. It's very obvious who, whose God is winning in this confrontation. Uh, when the flies swarm the land, God set apart the land of Goshen, chapter 8, verse 22, where the Hebrews live. When the livestock were struck, all of the Israelites' livestock were protected. And when boils or hail or darkness came, and, uh, and especially, of course, when the death of the firstborn arrived, the Israelites were spared. Uh, and another progression is found in Pharaoh's reaction to the plagues. Uh, at first... He has, he's like, it's like intermittently he begs for it to be over with, like after plague two and after plague four. But once plague seven hits, every single time he's just begging for it to be finished. It's like you see this progression happening and this man is being brought to his knees. God is systematically breaking down this man. Um, we made a little chart for you. We'll put it on the screen right now so you can kind of see an overview of these plagues. Hopefully you can read that. You got all the plagues in the first column, starting with turning the rod to a snake all the way down to the firstborn. You can see that second column there shows you which ones the magicians are able to do. They can make frogs, but no more. Gnats was beyond their abilities. Uh, you see the early morning confrontation at the Nile, the flies, and the hail. Uh, you see where there's no warning. And then I talked about the staff. The A stands for Aaron, so Aaron staff is used all the way through plague four, and then Moses' is brought out starting with the locusts. 
uh, the distinction between Israel and Egypt, and then where Pharaoh is begging. And I talked about all of those, but if you just want that for quick reference, you can get it online uh, at nateholdridge.com. But hopefully that's helpful to you. Uh, but I think what all these developments should give us a sense of is, like I said, that God is systematically, decidedly, and strategically warring for his people. Okay, he's, he's doing all these things because he is not going to rest until he gains these people for himself. Okay, I want to talk now and have you guys pay attention so you can pull the uh, slide off of there. <laughs> Okay, when we look at the cross, we see the same God. We see the same God. We see a God who wars for his people. Okay, Exodus shows us a God who broke through the Egyptian worship system. That's what he's doing right now. They're worshiping all these false gods. They have political dominance, and, the, and, and God is breaking through that. At the cross, we see the same thing. It shows us a God who broke through dead Judaism and Roman dominance to get himself to Calvary's cross to die for the sin of the world. Exodus shows us a God who warred against the demonic realm and this whole group of false gods represented in Egypt. The cross shows us a God who warred against principalities and powers that enslaved and bound humanity. Exodus shows a God who pardoned the iniquity of all who applied the blood to their doorpost and brought them through the waters of salvation at the Red Sea. The cross shows us a God who sheds his own blood so that we might be saved and pass through the waters of baptism. Same God. Okay, don't listen to theologians and pastors who try to tell you, like, this is a different God. We need to detach from the Old Testament. We need to get rid of it, all that kind of stuff. This is the same God. He wars for his people. And, uh, and God, he will go to battle for you. He wants you. He desires you. You know, some of you guys are in like, uh, you're in like a plague-like moment in your life. I don't know what it is that's happening. But, but sometimes we go through times like that because God is trying to grab a hold of us. How many times have, you know, I'm sure there are many of us in this room. Our story is that we became gospel people. We became church people. We, we gave our lives to Christ. We became Christians directly because there was some catastrophe that was unfolding in our lives. It hurt. It was painful. We didn't know where else to go. God is removing every other option as these plagues are unleashed upon Egypt. There's a story I love in the Old Testament. It's the story of Ruth. It's just like so refreshing because you're reading through the Old Testament and it's just, just lots of bad news. You know, there's just the people of Israel just failing over and over again. It's like, we need Jesus so bad, but he's not coming until the book of Matthew. So you're just like in all these like terrible moments. And then the book of Judges happens. And it's like, these are the heroes of Israel. I don't think so. They're crazy. You know, they're just a mix of sin and power and faith, but rebellion and all this stuff. And then there's this beautiful little story of Ruth right in the middle of it. It's about this Moabite young woman, she gets married to an Israelite guy and he dies, but she just becomes like totally faithful to God, becomes a real worshiper of Yahweh. 
And uh, there's this moment where her and her mother-in-law, who's, who's Jewish, she, they realize there's this guy in town that named Boaz, and he, he could redeem you. He could marry you, according to our laws. He could marry you. And uh, so they do this whole thing to kind of like make him aware of the situation. And he becomes aware and he gets up and he's like, okay, just get out of here. I'll take care of this because he's motivated. And uh, so Ruth goes home and she's like this innocent. She doesn't really know what's happening. But Naomi, her mother-in-law, she's like, just hold on because the man will not rest today until he has settled the matter. And that's what Boaz does. He goes, he works some business deals and some transactions, and he just makes it happen so that he can marry Ruth. And I love that story because, to me, in that moment, he's em- Boaz is emblematic of the Lord. Like, he will not rest. He will do what he has to do to get his people. And that's what's happening here, I think, through these plagues. God is warring for his people just as he will war for you. He loves you. He sees you as worth the effort, but he'll do what it takes. He'll do what it takes. The book of Exodus, these plagues, they they disabuse us of the idea of God as the great grandfather in the sky. You know, the the, the big Santa Claus, who's just a big softy. He is not that, and I'm happy for that. I'm glad to have a God who is willing to judge, a God who is strong. And you have to remember, this is not like a God who snapped. You know, the Bible says that he's slow to anger. It means long of nostrils. Literally, that's what it means. Like, it takes a while for the wrath to come out. But it does. 400 plus years, the Egyptians have been doing this stuff to the people of Israel. But finally, that moment of judgment came. I'm thankful for the long-suffering nature of God. But I'm thankful that the moment comes where the judgment occurs. Enough had been enough, and God is warring for his people. Okay, the second major theme I think we should look at in this passage is that God is presented here as completely sovereign or uh, in charge or powerful over the events. He's depicted as completely in control of the course of events, as the the supreme one. Uh, Even the number one man, Pharaoh, ultimately serves God's purposes in this development. Everything bends to his will, including creation itself. He's in complete control. Uh, He's in charge of Pharaoh. That's obvious, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the story shows us as well that he's in charge of creation. Uh, a A significant responsibility of the Pharaoh, according to the Egyptian mentality and mindset, was that the Pharaoh would maintain order in the cosmos, Isn't it obvious with the blood and water and frogs and insects and cataclysmic events in the skies that Pharaoh isn't in charge of anything? You know, he's not doing his job, basically. The whole plague narrative screams out that God, and certainly not Pharaoh, is responsible for the natural world. Even the structure of this section, three groups of three judgments each, I think it points us back to the orderly account of the creation in Genesis chapter one, the six days of creation. There, in the book of Genesis, animals and elements were given proper borders and boundaries by God. He's the one presented as in control. The sea is told you can go no further. The animals respected or feared humanity and the original darkness 
formlessness and voidness that was found on the face of the deep was replaced by God with light and with shape and with life throughout. But here, the animals know no bounds. They're just going where they shouldn't be going. The elements know no limits and darkness even overruns light. So dark they can feel it. And when that plague came in plague nine, the world was right back to the darkness that existed before God created. I'm saying this partly so that we understand God, God was very strategic here. He's not in heaven like rolling his like cosmic plague dice or like spinning the wheel. Like what plague is next? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> gnats, you know, kind of thing. What he's showing is that Pharaoh is the ultimate emblem of human hubris and hardness against God. And, and he's showing how sin ruins what God created. And that hardness, it always leads to this decreation. It's kind of what you see here happening. Uh, but God is also considered in this little movement, considered a sovereign or in charge of Pharaoh. God told Moses, of course, that Pharaoh would not let Israel go, at least partly because God would harden Pharaoh's heart. So God is presented as sovereign over Pharaoh himself. So how, how are we to understand that act of God? Was Pharaoh a mere robot that God programmed to behave in a specific way? Uh, did Pharaoh have no autonomy or no freedom of choice? Did God simply know that Pharaoh would refuse at some point or, and was just kind of predicting it? Or did God produce a secret inner working in Pharaoh so that he had no choice but to disobey God? Let, let's think about that for a second. I'm, I'm going to take about seven minutes to talk about that right now. So if this is not interesting to you, you can go get your fantasy football lineup set up or whatever, you know, answer an email. But uh, Okay, the word harden is a word that literally means to strengthen or have or be given the willpower to do what one has decided. So in a sense, you could say that God is seen as strengthening Pharaoh's will. This is what Pharaoh wanted, and God worked events out to further strengthen and solidify Pharaoh's mind, Pharaoh's will, and Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's some evidence of this in the text. Uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart at the sixth plague onward. So Pharaoh, for a while, is hardening his own heart or desire or will. Then God comes along and pushed the process Pharaoh started to completion. I think it's important to note when we're thinking about this that we're not dealing with an innocent man who was just puppeted along to a larger purpose than himself. Uh, his hardness of heart, in other words, is not like this brand new development. He's not like this Ned Flanders kind of guy that's just cruising through life, and then all of a sudden God's like, boom, hard heart. You hate the Israelites. This is like centuries in the making. He's, he's not been tender-hearted for a really long time. His predecessors slaughtered Hebrews. He himself made their servitude brutal. And all the pharaohs had received worship and adulation from the populace for hundreds of years. This is not the case of an innocent man who's carrying on with life when all of a sudden God points his heart in a new direction. This brutal tyrant is the epicenter 
of grave confusion, people thinking the wrong things about reality, partly because of him, and real injustice on planet Earth. That's who he is, and it was time for God to put him down. Now, just a little side note here. I think this maybe helps us a little bit with understanding why the Egyptian people themselves were also along for the ride with Pharaoh. Some people have like a real problem with that. Like Pharaoh is a monster. Why do the Egyptian people have to go through this? Because I think, at least in part, you don't get a guy like Pharaoh without a whole group of people that are into it. They're worshiping this guy. They've been praising this man and his family for generations. You know, we live in a time where the blame is always 100% or often 100% on the failed leader. And we have a problem with like celebrity culture and even in the church, celebrity pastors and stuff like that. However, where do celebrities get their celebrityness from? The people, right? So we... God is looking at this whole thing. He's like, this whole thing is broken. Uh, So God uses Pharaoh. God forced the issue to draw out, I think, Pharaoh's heart. God hardened him, but Pharaoh was no mere robot with no say in the matter. He had a front row seat to God's power and was commanded to obey, and God held him responsible for his decisions. And he started to obey at various points. When you read through the passages, there are moments where he starts to yield, he starts to obey, and then retracts. But God kept pressing. God kept pressing. And Pharaoh would not fully obey. He he would not yield. Uh, Dr. Gary Brashear says it like this. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and the story tells us how he did it. He did it by commanding Pharaoh toward righteousness. Like, here's the right thing, do that. And supporting that command, do righteousness, with miracles that would push him in that direction. Miracles so powerful that other people in the story are repenting, like the magicians. But Pharaoh, of his own character, refused. God forced him to keep going, though, and that is what hardened his heart. So, food for thought. However we understand this mystery, we do read of how so many other people responded in the passage. Like I said, the magicians repented, uh, began to obey God. Uh, By the end of the story, they're they're the ones begging Pharaoh to let the people go. God, God has revealed himself. Lots of Egyptians are listening to what God's directions before the plagues when there were warnings. Even hundreds of miles away, people in cities like Jericho and Canaan were hearing of God's mighty acts. And some of them decided to yield to God if they were given the chance. Uh, But others decided to go the way of Pharaoh and resist. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul used this story to illustrate how some people are vessels of mercy and some are vessels of wrath. He talks about that in Romans chapter 9. And a lot of people think that what Paul means there is that each human being is in a divinely fixed state without any real opportunity to respond to God's grace. But is that what Paul meant? Didn't Paul call for repentance over and over again? Didn't Paul have the hope of salvation for anyone who trusted in Christ? Paul again used the idea of household instruments in 2 Timothy. 
He said there that people are like household instruments, some used for honorable things, others are used for dishonorable things. Think of the different instruments in your house, maybe like a beautiful vase, honorable things, and then like a plunger, dishonorable things. But Paul didn't seem to think that anyone was locked into the honorable or dishonorable category. He said in 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Right, so I think that God was giving Pharaoh this opportunity. He resisted, rebelled over and over again. God was involved in hardening this man's heart, setting firm the decisions that he had made, holding him accountable to it. Okay, how do we apply, though, this concept of God being in charge or God being sovereign? My seven minutes are over. You guys can come back now. How do we apply this to our lives today? Well, I think one way that we might apply this this idea, this concept, is that we should say that we want to yield always to God's way. Uh, If holding fast to arrogant hubris like Pharaoh did led to such chaos and disorder, uh, we might assume that our little versions of Pharaoh-like rebellion will unleash little versions of chaos into our lives from time to time. Uh, God is long-suffering, he's gracious, he's merciful to his people. It took a long time, like I said, in a long line of Pharaohs before God acted here, but the message is received. Ultimately, God is looking for loyalty. He's looking for uh, a, a submission to him and his ways, not a rebellion against him. So let's be people who yield to him and his way. Life goes best when it's lived in the way that God has designed it. The blessed man, as the first Psalm tells us, is someone who delights in the law or the way of the Lord. And because his, he does, his life flourishes like a tree living beside a constant stream. Uh, but Pharaoh, what is he in this passage? He's like a tree that dries up and burns up in this passage. Uh, this man seemed to live the pinnacle of, of the human experience. At first glance, that's what it looks like. And everybody would have either wanted to be him or to be near him or to have him, but his life was weighed and found wanting. Another way to apply this, I think, is to trust that God will work out his purposes. I don't know if there are more Pharaoh-like leaders ruining the lives of others nowadays, than ever before, or if we're simply more conscious of them because of our constant uh, attachment to the news, but it can be discouraging to see his destructive tendencies replay throughout history. And Pharaoh, of course, was not the last of his kind. History inside the Bible and outside of the Bible is filled with other Pharaoh-like leaders. Oftentimes, these leaders are forced on a helpless populace, they have no say in the matter, but sometimes the crazy thing is these leaders are even elected by those they are ruining. The Egyptians worshiped Pharaoh even as he corrupted their minds and lives with the poisonous thought that he was a god. But we have to trust that the true God is moving in human history to to bring it to a sovereign conclusion. Uh, The book of Daniel prophesies that one day a kingdom made without human hands will replace all the kingdoms of this world and that that new and glorious kingdom will never end. I love that. 
I was thinking the other day about the trajectory of the book of Psalms. It's like at the beginning of the book of Psalms, there's all these interspersed within it, all these songs looking forward to King David's reign and the descendants of David. And then there just comes a point where they stop talking about David and they start looking for this new other king. And it's Jesus. That's who they're singing about. And that's who we're looking for. King Jesus, his rule, his reign, his kingdom. Okay, one last little short point, if I could give it to you guys here today about this little passage. The last theme I want to draw is um, that God wants us to remember. God wants us to remember. I want to draw your attention to chapter uh, 10, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, here, God, Yahweh, he specifically tells them to remember how he'd warred for them and sovereignly accomplished his purposes. And he says, I I want you to do this in the future. You, you You need to remember this in the future. It's not going to be the last time that you guys need my help to overcome impossible obstacles and obstinate foes. And when that happens in the future, you need to remember what I did for you right here. And you got to retell the future generations, your sons, your grandsons. You need to tell the next generations what uh, you have seen. By the way, I want to say to every parent here, teach your kids the Bible it is, and, and, and talk to them of his faithfulness in your life. It is, it is a blessing to have a great kids ministry that is focusing on Jesus and sharing the word, but it's just such a little small snippet of your child's life. It's massively formative. You know, we had our fall festival yesterday, like stuff like that is huge for a kid to, to come be on a church property and just have fun and like build that memory. It's like instilling something in them. Like this was a place that I felt safe and loved and good and encouraged and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we want to have happen every week when these little kids come to our children's ministry. But it's just like a little teeny moment in time for them. They're with you all week long. Teach them the Bible. Talk to them. I'm not talking about like, don't, don't play my sermons for them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talking about like getting out the picture Bibles or, you know, reading a little line to them and trying to explain the stories of scripture to them, but give them the word. Talk to them constantly about Jesus and grace and God's love and the need for repentance and how our sinful nature is real when they're coming up against that and realizing their own limitations and, but how God can change them and transform them, but he's so patient with them. Like, talk to them about that. That's what God is saying here to the people of Israel. These things I'm doing for you, you got to tell the next generation. Okay, but why were reminders like these so needful for the people of Israel? Well, they're needful because as humans, we're a forgetful species. We forget things. I love this story in the, in the Gospels. There's this moment where Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples right after he had miraculously fed 5,000 people and then fed miraculously 4,000 people. He had like done, like, would you ever forget that a day in your life? They get on a boat and Jesus like is trying to give a lesson to his disciples. So he's like, hey, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And the disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about. And so they did what they normally do when they don't know, and they talked to each other about it. <laughs> All they had to do was say, teacher, what do you mean? And Jesus would have told them, but they're like, we have to act like we know. So they're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they talked to each other, and their big conclusion was he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread into the boat. That was their big conclusion. So Jesus talks to them, and he's like, guys, how long have I been with you? You don't remember? You don't understand? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he just kind of went through it. He's like, when I fed the 4,000, how many extra baskets of bread were there? When I fed the 5,000, how many extra baskets? And they remembered that. He had to bring it back to their remembrance. And I think this is often us. We often forget God's faithfulness to us. Now, this forgetfulness, it produces a danger in us. First, when we forget God's faithfulness in the past, we struggle to trust him in the present. But also, when we forget God's faithfulness in the past, we are always tempted to rewrite the story of the past and make ourselves the heroes. But years later, Israel needed to remember that uh, they didn't do anything to get out of Egypt, but that God came and rescued them. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.